Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Elizabeth Champion, who is an arms and armor historian specializing in high medieval round table tournaments and the Merlin legends. She's also a historical fencer and co-founder of Stratford Swords and an ex-cage fighter. We're definitely going to be talking about that. So, (laughs) without further ado, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Guy, thank you so much for having me. It's just, I feel like a proper human practitioner now that I've got a slot on your podcast. I'm very, very, very <laughs> excited. Well, I mean, you could have asked for one a year ago and I'd have given it to you. But, <gasps> Never, but, no. <laughs> but pe- people don't ask. It's the strangest thing. I was expecting to be inundated with pitches, right? Mm. And I think I've had about five. Really? Yeah. But, I, but, I, but that doesn't really surprise me because you don't want to say I am worthy enough for a slot on a podcast give me a space you wait for them to come to you see if you're worthy enough I, well, I mean I actually have a publicist who goes around telling people you've got to get a guy on your podcast <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, and, 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 and people who like produce books and whatnot mm-hmm. and they need to get word of the book out to a wider audience mm-hmm. I mean I get why like and someone who is running a local historical martial arts club for instance and um, that's their sword thing, and then maybe they you know, work for a games company programming games on the side. Oh, that's their day job. Of course, the swords for me are always the main thing. Okay, so there's a game designer who runs a historical martial arts club or something. They may not realize that actually their perspective is interesting and useful. It's like you don't have to be a like full time professional sword person. Yeah. It's yeah. just. Because, I mean, how many of my guests have been so? No, that's a, that's a really good point. And it also prevents him from being super gatekeepy and saying the only people who can speak about this are the people who right. have swords of their life, which I'm completely against. Um, so, yeah, it's a really good point, actually. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, I, you know, it's if, if it was a technical discussion every time, it would be different, right? You know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to invite someone who's been doing historical martial arts for two years onto the show to discuss their interpretation of Capoeira, for example. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> right? Because that, 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 they're, they're pointless. Um, but I might ask them what it's like to be a beginner in a particular part of the world we haven't heard from yet or from a culture we haven't heard from yet or what have you. You know? So, yeah, but it's not common in a lot of podcasts to give those people space to talk, so... It's brilliant. Well, it's the point of the show, so <laughs> we have to. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I am failing in my brief. Okay, now let me let me actually ask you a question, um, which I ask pretty much everyone. Although, funnily enough, this is one question which a surprising proportion. You know, all my guests get to see the questions in advance, and you know, say, "Well, let's not talk about this," or "Let's definitely talk about this other thing we haven't mentioned." Right? Quite a few people don't want. To answer the question, where in the world they are. Really? Yeah. That's very interesting. But you could be so broad with this as well. Right. So, That's where in the world are you? interesting. I'm in Oxford at the moment. Um, okay. Which is lovely. I've just recently finished my master's in medieval history. 
and uh-huh. got my first proper full-time grown-up job at the University of Oxford, which is a shame to say, given that I'm 25 and it's my first full-time proper job. I don't Just think I've ever had a proper long. job. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's not strictly fair. I, I got a full-time job as an antiques restorer when I left university, so yeah. That's, that's, not the, same. that's the dream. That is the dream. What? Being a full-time antiques restorer. That's incredible. Ah, okay. Be wary of dreams. I... I had that dream and I went and I did it and it didn't work for me at all. Do you know, I say, I say exactly the same thing to people that want to become booksellers. You think it's going to right. be amazing and so romantic and lovely. And in reality, it's just retail and it comes with all the stress that normal retail does, except it right. looks fancier. Have you been a bookseller? Yes. Yeah, I have. I was a, a bookseller for about a year and a half and then the pandemic hit. That's um, a proper job. Yeah, but it was a weekend job while oh, okay. I was studying. So this is my first proper nine to five. Um, and in all places, Oxford's an amazing place to start out in it. Yeah, Cambridge is better. Uh, now, see, I am from just outside Cambridge. So Are you really? <laughs> yes, I was I born in Cambridge. Oh, well, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, I'm from, I'm from Bedford, but my partner's from Cambridge. So I'm very well okay. acquainted. But I think Oxford is just... Uh, it's a lot more spread out, whereas in Cambridge, right. it's, everything's really squished together, and then there's yeah. cows, and then there's yes. no, <laughs> there's no like gradual fading out. So in Oxford, there's a lot of lovely sort of little villages in the outside. It's yeah, it's a really nice place. As is Cambridge, okay. of course. As is Cambridge. So, what are you doing in Oxford? Uh, I'm an admin assistant actually for um, the Oxford Martin School, which is a department of economics. Which okay, has nothing, nothing to do with my studies at all. Is there scope to get into um, some medieval stuff? None, none whatsoever. But I'm a, I'm okay. a personal assistant to the ex-director who okay. loves to tell people that I study swords. So we get some very important people coming in who are not even a little bit interested. And he goes, this is my personal assistant, Elizabeth. Um, she studies swords. I'm like, it's really okay. You don't have to bring that into every conversation that we have. <laughs> um, but they really do encourage me to um, sort of in my own time work on my own research. And they celebrate okay. that just as much as the research for the actual employed researchers so that's lovely. oh really okay yeah so exactly. so you have access to libraries and stuff i have access to i got given manuscript access actually <gasps> i know i know um, i knew we'd be friends <laughs> which i rub in the face of my my poor partner of um seven years he's starting his um ba in philosophy and theology and okay. even he doesn't get manuscript access. And I rub it in his face all the time because well, all I had to do for my job application is there's a little box that says, will you be needing manuscript access? And I put a whole written note saying, well, not technically for my job, but for my research. And I'm going to submit a whole application because I was in the middle of doing a whole proposal for yeah. it because you've got to go through so many hoops. Yeah. Um, and the person interviewing me said, oh, it's okay. We'll just tick it and then we'll just give you that access. So it was a bit bittersweet though because I – so I – was given the job literally three hours after I submitted my dissertation and they were wow. the most three most boring hours of my life I was so bored in it was it literally just finished my master's and I was like I don't know what to do now I'm super bored so I got given this job with this access and I was like amazing so I made the mistake of looking at all the access I could get and it turns out I spent maybe six months of my master's trying to find these manuscripts on google books trying to get a page of anything yeah. and the second i got given this job 
all the doors opened and I thought, God, how much better my master's dissertation could have been had I been given this access from the start. It was such I have a thought changer. for you. Mm-hmm. I have a thought for you. Now that you have the access, mm-hmm. you should rewrite your thesis as a book and well, publish that. I have been speaking with a few people who recommended that I maybe submit it to Arthurian journals and things. So I just need to get on it. <laughs> but when yeah. you take a break, you just you lose that momentum, don't you? So I, yeah. yes, I am. I am. I lost momentum on a book recently, and yes, I don't know. I I find any excuse to do something else, like go in the garden <laughs> and shoot some Jaeger stock videos or something. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's so it's so difficult to stay on track, especially in things like humanities, where there's no. I don't want to say there isn't a pressing need because, of course, there is, and research is just as important as the sciences. But there's not really as tight to deadlines. Okay, it's, it's a useful life skill to distinguish between important and urgent. Oh, I like that. Right, like really lots like lots of emails are very urgent but not important at all, and things like the next book is actually quite important but not urgent. I love that. Oh, I'm so it's a, nicking it's that. A, it's a, you, you can have it. Thank you. Um, it, it, is a, it is a really useful life skill. Like, okay, this thing is urgent but not important. I can skip it. This thing is urgent and important. I'll do it right now. This thing is important but not urgent. I need to make time to do it because it's important. Yeah. Right? Um, it's like, you know, I have kids and it is very, very important to spend time with my kids. But on any given day, it's rarely urgent. But over the last 15 years of regularly making time to spend with the kids because it's important, also great fun, but important, it's, it, it, I never waited for it to become urgent, Yeah. which means that my 15-year-old actually talks to me oh, still. That's amazing. Because we've, we've, we've always had the habit and never lost it. Yeah. Right. It's, yeah. I love that distinction. I think it's, it's something I try and tell people so often I'm always the one who's sort of going no it's it what you do is really really important and then people say what you do is important as well I'm like oh no this doesn't apply to me this applies to everyone else but me and my own <laughs> <Right>. research <laughs> yeah I, anyway, I mean compared to like I don't know brain surgery or uh, oh, yeah, uh, pediatric mm-hmm. intensive care work mm-hmm. yeah what we're doing is neither important nor urgent mm-hmm. but you know if, if everyone in the world was a pediatric pediatric intensive care or sorry pediatric intensive care person there'll be no one to build the hospital yeah that's that's a really good point it's something that i've i've personally been struggling a lot with in my job because the people the research they're doing is in desperately urgent what they're working on uh, uh in so many developing countries a very very urgent uh projects they've got going on basically um, mm-hmm. But it's lovely because they also still make time to celebrate my own research about swords from 700 years ago um, and treat it just as importantly, maybe not as urgent, as you say, but um, it's it's difficult to keep a perspective that your research is important when you're surrounded by some very pressing, urgent research. Yeah, sure. But, you know, we, we all have our specific niches, our specific gifts. Very true. Like, I, you know, I, I have had a kid in intensive care when they were born and like swords are so incredibly unimportant in that moment but actually really it's you need to have that you know our culture requires people with lots of different skills and lots of different interests and you know without artists there'll be no point in keeping people alive with the science because what will these people do i could not agree more i could not agree more 
Yeah. My brother did a PhD in biology, and uh, at that time I was doing an MA in English lit. And he was like, yeah, guy, without us scientists, you, you artists would all be dead. And I said, yes, but Richard, without art, there's no point being alive anyway. Exactly. So. No, it's, it's so true. It's so true. And I found that so many of the skills that you learn in, in these kind of degrees are so, you can transpose them across so many different industries. I use so much of, so many of the skills I developed throughout my English literature, undergraduate, and my histories, masters, in my job in an economics department. And so many people come to me because of those particular skills I have that right. they don't. So what made you apply for that particular job? Uh, well, it was actually because my partner was relocating. So I just chucked out ah. a load of CVs. Um, and I remember thinking there is no way I'm going to get this job actually, because the person who was interviewing me, the ex-director of the school, um, who I was going to be personal assistant for, um, I took on a little bit in the interview because he said, I, I basically, I, I was coming to it from an internship that I did at the International Medieval Bibliography up in Leeds, which is just was such an amazing job. And he said, I see you've got a lot of experience in dealing with academics. Uh, I said, absolutely, I do. I am on myself. We're all absolutely mental. And he said, yep. He said, oh, he said, he said, but the economics field, you'll find um, economists are very, very different to the usual academics. And I said, I'm sorry, I have to stop you there because it's not even, that's not even a little bit true. Every single field <laughs> likes to think they're the kooky ones. They're the crazy, the dead mad ones who are working at th wacky hours and how they're so different to other fields. And I said, I'm sorry i said it's just it's not true your brand of quirky might be different to different fields but everyone's just as insane and i was like anyway he's not gonna i've taken him on a bit too much so i'm not gonna get the job <laughs> <laughs> um yeah okay so, so tell me about the job you were doing before that that sounds very much on brand it is very on brand it was um i was um offered a position there when i was doing my my master's at leeds um this was under actually it was it was a very odd position to be in because my boss was also my supervisor for my dissertation. And it involves basically, um, it's an incredible resource, the International Medieval Bibliography, and I was using it so much in my undergraduate. So it was incredible to me that I could be given an opportunity to okay. just, actually just contribute. For, for listeners, you might not have heard of it. What uh, is it? It's, it's basically a repository for articles from about there's going to be people shaking their fists at me. I can, I already know it. I think it, I believe it's 300 BC to 50, to 1700 AD. And it's right. about articles that refer to across all these years, all these different periods of study. So if you look up a certain index term, uh, say like Memento Mori in France in the 16th century, and it will come up with all the research and articles that's recorded within the bibliography. And it will give and you is, links. Is it available Outside of universities, can anybody use it? I believe it's mainly institutional access you require, um, I, unfortunately. Because uh, that sounds like the kind of thing that your average historical martial arts practitioner does not have access to, but really should. Yes, yes. So yeah. what's important to say is that it doesn't give you access to the articles, rather it's just uh No, it, tell, but it tells you that they exist so yes. you can go yeah. find them. Right. <laughs> yeah. That is not a small thing. That is a very, very <laughs> no, large thing. No, that's very thing. true. <laughs> that's very true. Um, so... A lot of that job involved being given um, journals and miscellanies before they were published. And you basically, I have to go through every single article, read it from beginning to end, uh, work out implied um, index terms. So, for instance, 
it might not be mentioned in the article, but it generally refers to X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, and I had to, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, categorize all of these articles basically in French, in German, in English. I had one in Bulgarian once and I was given it and I said, I, I don't speak Bulgarian. And they said, yeah, none of us do. So one of us has got to work it out. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, that was amazing. Unfortunately, I had to leave it because not unfortunately, fortunately they, they keep the internship just for students of the University of Leeds, which I think is incredible right. and really important. Um, yeah. So as as I left the uni, I, of course, had to give up that position. But um, yeah, it was wonderful, enough. really wonderful. So you had to read all of those articles? Yes, yes. That, that's a lot of reading. Yeah, well, it's, it's it, do you know what? It was very, it was great because I got to, my boss had a book he had to read. Um, he was given a PDF of it. So in an afternoon, I just read the whole book. And this is in economics and highlighted all the context or the, oh, this might be a useful point, all of this. And it came from a lot of my training in history. Even though that so was you, so you can read extremely fast. Well, I can read extremely fast, but I can't necessarily take in <laughs> all the information <laughs> I'm reading. Um, but okay. it's a very useful skill, especially if I'm looking through a lot of manuscripts in quick succession, trying to get the gist of everything it was a it was a great opportunity to practice that wow but that, very that high sounds, pressure it sounds like a really good sort of apprenticeship for being a medieval historian it was it was an amazing apprenticeship for that not only just for the access and all the articles you'd be sent like you can then sort of keep a copy of yeah. but it was it's you discover things you don't even know exist so you don't know to look for them Right, because you don't know it's a thing. You don't know anyone's yeah. writing on it. Um, that was uh, that was a little bit like what it was in my undergrad. I wrote on what I wrote for my dissertation because someone brought it up. I couldn't. I wouldn't have known it was a thing to write about had it not been mentioned to me. So it's like. So we're talking about roundtable tournaments. Uh, roundtable tournaments, yes, yeah, okay. and then so my undergrad is, as well. Okay, what is a roundtable tournament? Oh my gosh. That's a really good question. And I well, still... I'm, I'm assuming you're qualified to answer it. Well, I still don't have an answer. But <laughs> okay. that's... It, one thing that was... I was researching this style of tournament because it's not quite clear as to what it is. Um, okay. Actually, before I carry on, I, I have to give a shout out to Dr. Christopher um, Barad because he very generously sent me copies of his work on round tables, um, which gave me a lot of leads uh, for my master's. He's like the one of the very few people that's doing work on these at the moment so i have to just give a quick shout out to him i can't can't possibly <laughs> carry on without doing that Fair. Um, no we do like giving credit um but yes i was reading through um i was studying under dr alan v murray and his amazing tournaments module it's why i chose leeds in the first place um because it's the only medieval tournaments module in it's so difficult to find a module on something that specific and i sure. remember doing a lot of the background reading for the course and my back background in my undergraduate is Arthurian literature. I kept on seeing these things called round table tournaments. And I was like, what? all these researchers and scholars are saying, uh, are giving very brief definitions, very um, general overviews, but they weren't really explaining exactly what they were. Um, many articles, for instance, define the event as clearly Arthurian. And though it's attempting 
and, and likely true definition. It's led to historians overstating the Arthurian elements of the event. Okay, um, but, sorry, one second. By Arthurian, yes. do you mean related to Arthurian legends or related to the historical King Arthur or both? Uh, more so the legends and the literature right, okay. and the courtly romance, etc. Um, I mean, round tables were very likely inspired by the literature. So I think the definition of sort of an Arthurian framework is perhaps more accurate. And a number of things take place at a round table. So you've got feasting, dancing, feats of arms, hastaludes, etc. But that can be attributed. What's a hastalude? A hastalude is basically, it's it's spear play. So it's joust is a type of hastalude, but um, sort of any martial arts sort of with a spear but it's predominantly a, a joust basically okay. um, but it's a term that's useful to use just in case it's sort of any things yeah. that I, I, I did warn you in the beginning that if, I, if you say something that I think the average listener won't understand I will ask for a definition <laughs> and it's useful to brush up myself because sometimes it's a, it's a term you use this is, this is my point this is what I was like with the round table people yeah. just use the term and then years and years later you're like hang on wait what was it exactly that I'm talking about and, and what, they, what did they actually mean back then yeah, exactly okay. Exactly. So, so um, a roundtable tournament is some kind of event where there's yeah. definitely some tournament fighting going on, but also party time. Yes, and also party time. I would guess from the name that that the participants are treated equally, as in it's See, not that hierarchical. Is, that's really interesting. There's there's no, at least to my mind, no. Please, nobody come and attack me. Um, to my mind, that's not true at all but it's see this is this was what i was getting so frustrated at and i brought to my supervisor everyone brings a different meaning to what Mm -hmm. round table means so it's really important that we actually work out what they meant by a round table tournament um there's a problem with it hugely in the chronicles of of round tables because each person who is writing about a round table has a different relationship to joust so for instance those from court readily understand the distinction between various tournaments because they're more acquainted with the practice. So they can record these events with very specific terminology, whereas clergy members who write tons of chronicles usually generalize and truncate the accounts. They'll say, a a roundtable took place in Kenilworth. You're like, okay, great. And then then there's no other information. But that manuscript is recorded as having um, a reference to a roundtable. So, so much of my master's was going through these manuscripts and realizing, hang on, it's just a sentence that says a round table took place. There is no other information. It's really, really difficult. Um, Another difficulty is that contemporary sources regularly labeled round tables as just tournaments because they thought that terminology was sufficient enough in annals where specifics aren't essential. Um, Even modern historians use shorthand. So, a, a lot of them will just say a feast. So they'll start off their chapter talking about round tables and then just revert to using the term feast. So again, I was like, does it focus more on the party aspect? Is it nothing to do with the tournament as much as it is the feasting and the dancing? Um, and in doing that, sh- in using that shorthand, they follow a lot of contemporary sources. So for instance, um, uh, Jean Lebel refers to the 1344 Windsor Round Table as a great feast that was modelled upon the round table. Um, Fossard describes them as a feast. Um, the translator compiler of uh, Le Grand Conquista de Ultramar also calls them a great feast followed jousting. So, again, is the jousting paired with the feast? Is the is it both a round table? Is it one or the other? It's really difficult to really get down to what it actually is. 
Um, but most okay. historians seem satisfied that that combination of events amounts to a round table. Um, what I realized is that uh, uh, people were saying things like, oh, lots of costumes are used, Arthurian costumes. There is one, maybe two references, at least in British round tables, that talk about people dressing up as Arthurian characters for a round table tournament. That's not a common occurrence, unless no. they were occurring so regularly Commonly, that they didn't bother. No mentioned it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really difficult. Um, What's quite interesting, I found, because I then compared roundtables to continental roundtables and found that in continental sources, they tend to talk more about a placement and arrangement of tables. So, for instance, the translator compiler of La Gran Conquista de Ultramar calls it El Juego de la Tabla Redonda, but distinguishes it from the roundtable of King Arthur. And he says, um, he says it's called the, the, the game is called this. He says, because, uh, they bring out tables and, uh, these tables are set all around. And for that reason, they call it a game of the round table and not by the other that was in the time of King Arthur. So does that mean round table tournaments oh. were Arthurian? Does it mean they're not? It's so I, difficult. Well, what, what you just said to me su- would suggest that, okay. It's called a round table because of this arrangement of tables. It's got nothing to do with Arthur at all. That's that's what he seems to think. That is, but he what, might he might be wrong. Exactly, he might be wrong. <laughs> um, there's also, for instance, I found um, a manuscript in the Berkeley manuscripts that's regularly missed actually because they use the term round play, not round table, oh. and it was talking about uh, the Kenilworth round table in 1279, and it says that. It was called a round table because they say where the knights uh, sported, they were encompassed around with a strong enclosure of timber, which supports the theory that round tables are called that due to their physical structure, not due to Arthurian content. Right. So it's really difficult. It is so, so difficult to sum up. Is there any reason to believe that over the course of like four centuries and many different countries, it meant the same thing anyway? This is exactly, exactly. like, you know, if we say tournament now, mm-hmm. it means one thing, but historical martial arts tournaments 15, 20 years ago were very different things to what they are now. Mm-hmm. But we still just call them like longsword tournament. Exactly. I mean, exactly. Um, and sometimes it's because we sort of think, well, there's not really much point in distinguishing it because if you said to anyone on the street, I'm going to do a tournament with swords, they're going to pretty much work it's it's not something that really needs lots more explanation because they're like okay right. you clearly have a sword you're clearly going to fight it's not like me saying i don't know it, it doesn't seem to need that much it's like they've got the majority yeah. of information they think they need and the problem yeah. is with lots of these chronicles they're being written by clergy members by um in annals where it's like really short bits of information uh, yeah so it's really hard to find descriptions and for me i get very frustrated when everyone's assumed some kind of knowledge and then just moves on. And there's very few studies that have been done saying that this is what they were or here's the manuscripts right. that prove it. It's it's very difficult. Okay. So you didn't actually um, come come to any firm conclusion? That's correct, no. Um, it's, okay. it's something that I really want to do for maybe a PhD because I had to cut... I've kept all the research. Yeah. But I had to cut so much information whilst also trying to get the point across. And it's very difficult to say, there's a really long history of uh, people saying that the round table was based on round enclosures, 
but I only have time to give you one example. Just trust me. <laughs> it's, it's, you, right. you're not going to, you know, do very well with that. So I'd love to be able to really expand it and um, get into it. Are there any illustrations from contemporary manuscripts? None that I could find. I'm sure. Okay. Print- I mean, um, there are loads and loads of, of like illustrations in manuscripts of all different kinds, including mm-hmm. Bibles of mm-hmm. people fighting with swords and having tournament type activities. Yep. But there isn't, there isn't one, there isn't a picture of. Not I could find. There's a lot of pictures of like jousts and feasts and people sitting around tables, but there's nothing that says, here it is, here's a drawing of it. Right, okay. And then, because even if there was, you've got to ask, well, is it because it's a British one? Is it because it's a continental one? Is it, was there anything distinguishing this? Why have they drawn it in the first place? I have a thought. Okay, no, there are are loads of people who are dead into medieval stuff who listen to this show. I mean, loads of them. And some of them may have come across some some source that may be useful. Would you like them to send it to me so that I can send it on to you? Would that be helpful? Okay. I have a whole appendix. I I need to show you this. I have a whole appendix that I need to publish at some point of every single reference to a round table in a manuscript, the Latin for it, what it actually translates to, the context of it. I've got this whole big spread of it. So I'd love to see if there's any more sources that I've missed. Okay, yeah. So actually, that'd be really helpful. Um, if you, okay, feel free to say no, and I can cut this bit out if you like. Um, why don't you send it to me, and I'll stick it in the show notes? Of course, of course. I'm, I'm oh, not one okay. to. No, I'm not one to. You know, it's it's all knowledge that can be helped, and if anyone can help us build on that knowledge, amazing. I'm not Brilliant, panicked okay. that someone's going to beat me to the punch because if so, I want to know about them so we can talk about it, so we can build on the research. So definitely, Perfect. okay. So appendix will be in the show notes. And, and so if you have, if you think you may know something, check if it's in the appendix. If it's already there, you already know about it. And if it isn't there, send it to me and I'll pass it on to you. You must. Please, please, please. Let's crowdsource this. Yes. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. So my, my very simple question, what exactly is a round table tournament? Um, is, well, after maybe eight PhDs, we'll have some idea. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Okay, um, that sounds like the best questions, actually. Well, that's why I knew I was taking a real risk with it, because I, I couldn't come up with a really nice, neat answer for my examiner, for my master's, but I'm really, I really back the research that I did. And I, re- I just have a, a gut feeling that this is important and even if at the end of the day going through all of it we say oh no the historians uh, were right when they sort of ass- roughly assumed this great at least we've confirmed it now we know yeah exactly. excellent okay and and you, you they gave you your MA right yes yeah yeah right. yeah because yeah. You, you don't have to actually answer the question necessarily you have to push the research forward well exactly exactly yeah. so um, and I'm very happy overall with it. at least I've got that box ticked <laughs> excellent Which, yeah roll on the phd yeah <laughs> or, or if not phd just just write the book yeah yeah but i mean if you want a career in in mainstream university academia stuff then you need the phd well i did i really really did but i'm i know so many academics who are so far in their career doing exactly what i want to do in 10 20 years time and not all of them, of course, and it's it's very very fulfilling work. But it's 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 hard, hard, hard work for very little pay. It reminds me a bit of book selling. That it was really hard work. 
for, for minimal wage. Whereas the job I do now is a really nice nine to five. I can leave my work at the office, come back and spend all that time writing and not having to push for a, any kind of particular deadline or funding or... Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I did think I really wanted an academic job. And now, now that I'm doing this really lovely nine to five in a nice, lovely office with a sparkling water tap, I'm like, I don't know. Do I want to go to humanities? <laughs> like I turned up, I turned up on the first day and I said, right. Um, so I'm going to bring in my pencils. I'll bring in my sticky notes. And they said, no, 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 there's a, there's a stationary cupboard. I said, oh, but that's not, that's not for me. Right. And they said, yeah, just get a notepad, get your high. So I was like, the resources here are insane. Uh, they, have, they have actual pencils that <laughs> you can use. Pens- I know. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and sparkly water. Yeah, sparkling water tap, hot water tap. Well, honestly, that's lovely. probably that. That's because that's econ, right? I well, doubt. I doubt the English lit department has the same. Well, exactly. So a lot of my coworkers say, "Oh, maybe you should look for." jobs in the humanities department i'm like yes but i'm very nah. attached to the illy family personally donated a whole cafe to the economist department that i work at so it's very <laughs> it's gorgeous fuck the, the coffee i double l y the coffee that you can get in supermarkets they they just donated a cafe to your econ department do you know like the the arts are not sufficiently appreciated, I think. They're really not. So you can imagine, I've got I've got my work, a whole board. I found like a historical map of Oxford, all these pictures of medieval stuff, and I'm trying to really represent hard. And yeah. <laughs> one thing I do, I do a lot of proofreading for the researchers. And I remember one of them in a, in a recent uh, study they did said, uh, we're looking at XYZ in um, science-based articles, but we're not going to look at humanities-based articles for this study because of reasons X, Y, and Z. I'll just put a little sad face next to it. No. So they, said the next, they said that next time they'll include it. <laughs> but yes, change your whole change your whole study just to yeah. make me happy. Yes, great. Right, that seems, seems fair to me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so who was Merlin? Oh, <sighs> What a question. It's, I'm afraid it's another round table question. Actually, do you know what? It's almost the opposite in the sense that there okay. is so much information <laughs> that we don't really know where to begin. This is, I studied, so I studied this for my undergraduate. I remember in my very first year, I had to do a module called Medieval to Renaissance Literature. And yep. I was like, because I was there for Renaissance Literature. It was not right. even a little bit. I hated medieval stuff. It's the one with the flat drawings super boring not interested i want to do shakespeare and all of that yeah and we had a very first lecture and the lecturer was talking to us about we were reading Gawain and the green knight we got to talk about dragons and merlin i was like this isn't an actual field of research is it we're just doing this to practice our middle english and everything he said no no you can you can actually there's lots of scholarship on merlin so i was like mind blown are you kidding me this is insane this is the person that grew up reading like aragon and all of this and i'm like you're telling me that i can write a dissertation on like dragons and merlin yeah so that's why i started to look into merlin and i realized looking into merlin my supervisor said to me okay so what a which merlin like what period are you going to look at and I, i said oh i don't know just the the middle english one i suppose and then i realized looking into it there are so many editions of Merlin. Yeah. He's just so many, he's so many characters, so many people. Like my personal favorite is a version 
of a story where he's effectively like a young Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory, except he's really cruel and keeps on predicting people's death and laughing at them. You wouldn't think of that when you think of like the Disney Merlin or the BBC Merlin. He's a really nasty little boy that terrifies all these soldiers because he's like, I don't know why this guy's bought shoes. He's going to be dead before he gets home. (laughs) Stupid. (laughs) People are like, what? (laughs) So he's a combination and an appropriation of a whole cast of characters. You've got Lilacan, Emerus, um, Merlin Silvestris, Merlin Calendosis, but and not only this, he has such a wide variety of roles, so each version of that character has so many versions within that character. So, for instance, when I was studying, I personally defined Merlin as a prophet, a political advisor, and at times a battle strategist. And I thought that was the best way to define Merlin, because you can see these qualities going way back into Merlin's literary history. So Merlin begins, um, we think, as Midrin Vilt in a pre-12th century Welsh poem. Um, he's a 6th century Welsh madman, um, which some people say is where the word Midrin comes from. Um, and he's blessed with the gift of foresight. So some describe him as a bard, uh, some as a prophet, others as a warrior. But most sources agree that he had a traumatic experience at the uh, Battle of Afterid, I think. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. But in, in about 575 AD, which consequently drove him into the forest of Celadon. And poems about this go back centuries before this was written down. Um, for instance, there's a there's a poem called The, um, the Dialogue of Mithrin and Taliesin, which acknowledges Mithrin's capacity as a seer. So he begins as a soldier and a prophet who's sort of got these prophecies through this kind of PTSD that he's developed after this battle. And the Merlin that most people will be familiar with in terms of medieval literature is the one developed by Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was um, Bishop of um, St. Asaph, uh, who's credited as the first author to really shape the modern Merlin. He takes a lot of this sort of mad element of Merlin and he explores that prophecy um, in his book, um, I think it's Prophete Melini, uh, which is his earliest work. And then he expands and expands through Historia Regum Britanniae, through um, Vita Malini, and he keeps on trying to smooth out a lot of contradictions in his character. So it's really... The Merlin we know is an amalgamation of a couple of different Midrins that Geoffrey had heard about and wanted to kind of smash into one character. Um, to me, he's predominantly like a trickster, uh, which is uh, evidenced in Robert de Boron's text, but his prophecies are taken super seriously for centuries after Geoffrey of Monmouth. I mean, people go to prison for reading about Merlin in like the Tudor times and things and taking it seriously. So there, there was a historical Merlin in the sense of there was probably a soldier at this battle, just as we think there was probably an Arthur who was maybe three different people that we sort of amalgamated into one person. Um, but it's again, it's someone with a lot of iterations, so it's very difficult to pin down in the opposite mm-hmm. way to a round table tournament. There's just like no do you, information. Do you, think, do you think he may have been based on stories of druids? He reminds 100%. me of a druid. One hundred percent, absolutely. He completely comes from that tradition. Okay. Um, that would be a really, really good explanation. And to my knowledge, there was a lot of there's a mixture of prophecy and battle and fighting. Right. In my very limited knowledge about um, sort of that period of history, so it, it would make sense. But it's yeah, very interesting to see. 
Druids are bards and prophets and doctors and advisors yeah. and strategists and, you know, all sorts of things, priests and, you know. Exactly. Huh. Okay. So, of of the modern depictions of Merlin that listeners are likely to be familiar with, which is your favourite? Oh, oh, it's oh, it's torn between. I did have a soft spot for Sword and Stone Merlin because I just love how grumpy he is. T H Y. Yes. No. 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 Yeah. Um. The uh. The Disney. Not the Disney. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Ha- You're you going far the... too literary. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, the, is it T H White? Yes. Or is it? Yeah. Um, they're fantastic. Okay. So. Yeah. So the Disney one, I think, is one. so. On point for there's so much humour. So I, for my dissertation, I again I'm, I you you see I'm go I go zero to hundred super quickly and go all in and then I don't care about the grade I get because I just want to do the research and I'm like if, as long yeah. as I pass I don't care don't care yeah. I just want to do this research. So I studied specifically a text that I happened to find at the International Medieval Conference in Leeds. There was one book that was called The Prose Merlin. I was like, oh, Merlin, I'm looking into Merlin. Let's grab it and see what it's about. I could not have picked a harder text. There is, <laughs> okay. oh, there, so there is one manuscript, one unabridged transcription of the Middle English written in the 1800s, of which I have one of the very few copies that are in existence. It was so hard for me to get. I got it actually after I did my undergraduate dissertation through a lot of my family members pulling together to get me the book because it was so expensive because it's so rare. Oh, wow. Okay. And there is one Middle English abridged transcription written in the 1990s. Apart from that, there's nothing. So I went through, I translated the entirety of the Middle English prose Merlin into modern English, which took about half my time for writing this dissertation anyway. So again, it's this kind of... I'm spending so much time looking for the resources and I re- leave so little time for the <laughs> writing. But I've now got this whole edition that's all written up. And Have in it, there is... It? No, no, not yet. I need ah, to... come on! No, 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 I know, I know. I know, I know. It's, um, it's, I have to go through... It's, it's written in note form and in summary, so I need to go through so. and really, like, choose particular words and all of this. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I did that. And there is so much humour in the text and so many nuances that we, that modern readers don't get it. And why would you? It's not, most people aren't going to read Middle English. It's, it's both the same humour in that a lot of the jokes they wrote then are still very funny, but it's also like jokes go, like the earliest joke ever recorded. What is it? Um, what's the cleanest leaf in a forest? And it's a holly because you're not going to wipe your backside with a holly leaf, are you? <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's from 6,000 years joke. But that's from 6,000 years ago. So I okay. hate it when people say, oh, the humour was very different. No, it's exactly the same. It's just written in different ways yeah. that are perhaps less accessible. So, so I would have to say Sword of the Stone, Disney Merlin. Okay. And then, of course, of course, it has to be BBC's Merlin is so on point. Okay, which which one? The um, BBC, so early 2000s. So BBC who's playing TV Merlin? Show. It's Colin... Uh, Colin... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to do a quick Google. All right. Uh, Colin Morgan. That's it. Colin Morgan. Okay. Um, 
you sound like you're not familiar with it, which is stressing okay. me out I, a bit. I, 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 I have I have seen lots and lots of different moments once, but mm-hmm. it's never been a major interest of mine. And the swords are always so very, very wrong. Oh, they're, they're deeply wrong. It's BBC right. budget. It's like a Pringles and can spray painted as like, a, like the budget yeah. is awful. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I may have seen it, but I probably didn't watch it more than once. Yeah. That's, that's, that's absolutely um, fair enough. The, the one I'm most familiar with is the one that my younger daughter got madly into a few years ago. And he's this young wizardy person, I forget who plays him. And, and the Arthur, who, the, the Arthur character mm-hmm. is this sort of upper class prick. And Merlin is just constantly like, yep. you know, yep. dis- dissing him the whole time. Yeah, that is basically the entirety of all literature on Merlin and Arthur. Merlin very publicly chastises Arthur on a number of wow. occasions. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that so that's actually that's that that actually has some basis in the legends. Wow, absolutely, okay. there's a there's a there's a battle that happens and uh, something happens to Arthur where he does legitimately have to pull out for a moment, and Merlin's like, "What the hell are you doing? Get back in there! The, what, what are you doing?" And he's like, "Oh." Okay, bye. And then, and then it's noted that all the other soldiers kind of like, like, as in, all the other knights, like Sir Tristan, and um, are all just like laughing at him as he's going back into the into the fight. Like, yeah, you idiot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, very much so. Ah, okay. Yeah, and and like, I can just, I can feel like this. There's, this is going, ah, oh, yes, but this version of Merlin is the right one, and this one is the best oh, one. Oh, who this one, cares? Yeah, yeah who well, quite, exactly. Who cares? Who cares? He's, he's, who cares? Who cares? Because he's, at this point, he is fundamentally a fictional character. At, at, at the point of which he was being written, he is fundamentally a fictional character yeah. that was built upon basically Welsh fan fiction. So just because it's 800 <laughs> years on from that fan fiction doesn't make that fan fiction any more serious. It's ridiculous. Just, just like what you like. That's okay. There is not one official proper. Every, everything is a copy of something previous. Yeah. Like for in, like, if you look at a building that looks old, you're like, "Wow, that must be really old." No, it's Victorian because they're trying to make it look old, and the things that look new are actually the really old ones. So it's like even in like daily life where people are trying to go back to the original. Well, that one is wrong. That's not actually original. That's Victorian. So we need to go back to the original. It's it's ridiculous. It just just like which version you like. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey well, Holmes is not going to come out and tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've heard it here, everybody. Yes, Elizabeth says you can like what you like, and that's fine. Brilliant. All right. Speaking of liking what you like, yes. Did you actually like cage fighting? <laughs> it's. Um, I absolutely loved it, but I did it at a very, very, very young age. Um, I, I mean, like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was so into it. Um, but I ended up taking a knee to the knee, as it were. Um, yeah. And I was the only, I would say, woman, girl there training at the time. And it was very much a culture of, oh, get on with it, princess. Get over yeah. it. You know, um, I now walk with a walking stick because of that injury. Wow. Yep. So it was a horrible culture that I couldn't go back to. So I loved sport. It was amazing. Uh, but I so, did it very young. So it's not serious. How did you get into it? Um, through what <laughs> through watching films like Transporter, like Jason Statham and everything, and I was like, "This is really cool type of fighting. What is it?" Um, and it turns out it was lots of mixed martial arts. Um, like that's okay. how I got into Hema as well. Was going, "This is really cool type of fighting. What is it?" And then going off and getting into that as well. So, okay, so you were you were training 
like MMA as a teenager. Yes. And did you actually fight in the cage at all? Did I didn't get a chance did to. We, we did have we did have a cage, so we we did practice yeah. in it a lot, which was insane. But um, I didn't get to compete properly. I was going to, but then took then a knee to the knee. Hey, that's that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was or, great fun. But you might have got your neck broken, so it saved you that. That's true. That's true. You know, that's, it's, it's a better way to look at it, I think, because <laughs> you know. It, it feels like really bad luck, but how do you actually know? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I'm not, I don't, you know, it's my life's gone in lots of other directions um, in terms of sport. I went into rowing and then I went into HEMA and fencing and things. So so, so you went into rowing with a dodgy knee? Oh, yeah. A dodgy back as well. So I have, um, I damaged my L3, L4 when I was 11. Yeah, and it was what? so bad that I couldn't, it just, it was rollerblading. But I couldn't. Okay. I remember I, I I I I couldn't walk, and my dad thought it was because I was trying to get out of church that day. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so it then set off. It's a very long, boring story. But to summarise, it then set off uh, something called fibromyalgia, which took right. me twelve years to get a diagnosis. For people to believe that I was in chronic pain because who's going to believe a child and a teenager going, "Oh, really hurt"? It's like they're just going to be like, "Oh, for good sake, just get on with it." Um, which is why I'm such an advocate for disabilities now, because I had, I had actually someone talk to me today about it and very well meaningly and lo- a lovely, lovely woman. She said to me, Oh, you're very lucky that you got a diagnosis because for most people it takes them all their lives. But she didn't realize I'd actually been going for a diagnosis since I was 11. It was a very <laughs> hard journey and it took me 12 years, but it's just because I started early. So, um, yeah. so yes, yeah, so I, I went into rowing despite a dodgy everything because for me personally, the way I deal with my disability is I, I'm in pain a lot of the time. So I, I personally like to think, well, if I'm going to be in pain, I might as well. I want to have a reason for it. So I'm not lamenting it. That's not the way for everyone. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. People deal with their disabilities in different ways. I'm certainly not encouraging that people just go out and do that if that's not for them. But for me, it was a great way to feel like it was towards something. Um, and okay. yeah, feel like I was so, doing something. So, how did you get into the swords exactly? So the way I got into the swords was I did a lot of, um, at the time, so I was rowing at the time, but I was also doing uh, a lot of work in theatre and a lot of work in film. And I remember getting to talking with the stunt people at the time. So hang on, hang on. You were doing a lot of work in theatre and film, how? Um, so I was, I've been in theatre like since I was like, God, eight, nine. My my uncle is a is a TV film actor, so I got okay. into like that kind of thing from a very young age. And it was actually at the time that I was doing, um, uh, you know, uh, Disney did a remake of Dumbo. Yes. So I was. I wish they hadn't. Oh, me too. I haven't even watched it. I'm in my, it. My I cousin, watched it. My my cousin um, is an aerialist, and she worked on Dumbo. Oh, and my no! friend James is a is an actor of various other things. Yeah. And he was a flute player in the orchestra on, in Dumbo. I swear every, every single, I know I've met so many people who did Dumbo. It's insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I was doing that and I also haven't watched it. Um, but I was talking to a lot of the stunt people who they didn't like, they did like Wonder Woman and things like that. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, what I, I love what you're doing. And I love, I wanted to work out basically, are you doing things that are, historically accurate in all the stunts they were doing or is it for reenactment purposes which is also 
absolutely a way of um, performing and doing the sport. But I was more inclined towards sort of the academic side of it, and I wanted to know the whole history behind these things. So I was talking to a friend at the time who's part of the Warwick Knights, um, because I'd go into his house and there'd be like swords and everything. I was like, how can you get these in a legal capacity? Because I love them. And I just, how, how can you possibly get to having these and studying these? So he put me onto HEMA. Um, and I just started doing it from there. It was great. Okay. So uh, what did you do in Dumbo? I was just, a, I started off as a background actor. Um, okay. And then <laughs> I remember they lined us all up and, and um, Tim Burton. And then I think it's Colleen, I think it's, I think it's Colleen Atkins who was doing the costumes at the time, they walked past and they picked five of us that they wanted to be sort of more prominent background people um, in the background of a lot of scenes where we could be seen sort of thing. Um, oh, cool. So they picked us out. So that was, that, was a, that was a trip being picked out by Tim Burton. That was insane. <laughs> and I remember they lined us all up. And there were hundreds of us and they, were, they had a few jackets and they also sort of wanted to see who would fit in the jacket. And I got stuck in the arm of the jacket and he's just there like staring at me like, what are you, are we sure we want to go with this person? I'm like, just give me just one second. I'll just get my sleeve in. I do put on jackets. I promise. I know how to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And I was going to, I was, I was called back for a few more scenes and it was at that time I was in uni and I could have easily done my uni work from home, which was where it was being filmed. But I just was so ridiculously bored of it. It was, it's, I much prefer theatre where there's that lot of adrenaline and that live yeah. um, performance. It's the most boring work in the world. It's great pay, um, but it's, it's so dull. I was getting through a book a day on set because you just, you just sit around. Nothing else to do. No, yeah. yeah. And, and as is, and it's nobody's fault. It can't possibly go any faster. Everyone's working yeah. so hard, but it's just the nature of it. Yeah, I, it, it can take like two years to make a 90 minute movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Yeah. Whereas, whereas on stage, it takes 90 minutes to do a 90 minute play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe 92 um, minutes where you guys have rehearsed for the two minutes. <laughs> yeah, we'll just do that quickly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's preparation, and it's, but it's not years usually. It's usually exactly. a couple of months or so. Yeah. At most, yeah. Um, Okay, so that got you into historical martial arts. How did you find it having you know, disabilities and whatnot? Mm. How did you find getting into the historical martial arts? It was, it was difficult. And I was really okay. grateful when you sent me this, this list of questions where you, where you did bring up my disabilities because it's something that I... I, it's really important to me to talk about as someone that presents as very able-bodied on the days I don't have a stick. Um, as you know, I've got ADHD and autism as well. And it's really important for me to talk about these things as much as possible so that people know that they're quite normal things to have. And I found right. that actually in HEMA, so many people are neurodivergent or have physical disabilities and are quite open about it. So that was a lovely environment to go into because you you look at it and you think there's no possible way I can do this if I have a myriad of disabilities. It's it can be quite dangerous. We've got swords, especially if you don't know anything about it. Yeah, you're um you're sort of panicking about how you'll fit in, and especially coming from a neurodivergent point of things, there's two main issues I think. One, it well it mainly it all comes back down to sensory overload. So I was really 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 worried about how how it's going to affect I, the ways I get, for want of a better word, sort of triggered with my sensory overload. So 
um, for instance, certain sounds, I can't distinguish. Uh, if everyone's talking and someone's calling my name, I can't hear, I cannot pick up on different things. So I was panicked about, oh, are there going to be lots of people and I won't be able to hear? What will the protect- protective gear feel like? Will it kind of freak me out and throw me off my game a little bit? So there were so many factors I had to take into account, but I was very lucky and the people I was training with were very gracious and they let me try on their protective gear first. They, um, it really explained what we were going to be doing. So I didn't feel like there'd be any sort of curveballs and it really enabled me to, to practice in a, in an environment where I didn't feel like I had to hide a lot of things that I personally found difficult and I wasn't made to feel like I was a burden to my partners. So that was great. And I haven't found that in any sport that I've done apart from Hema. So yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to what the club is for. And yeah. in, in something like, for instance, I don't know, sport, fencing, or cage fighting, or whatever, the club is to produce trophies, mm-hmm. right? That's really, that, that's how you define success in that field, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, so a student who comes along to a club where what they're really interested in is getting trophies, mm-hmm. who is not likely to get a trophy because they have a dodgy knee or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like, well, why are they even here? Right? Yeah. Whereas with historical martial arts, one of the reasons I like historical martial arts actually is that, you know, it's not urgent. Yeah. Right? Not urgent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it doesn't actually matter how good a person gets. Mm-hmm. It just matters whether they're moving in the direction they want to be moving. Yeah. Yeah. I think as a field, we, we're very lucky in that we can kind of sort of hide behind the fact that we have, there's a historical reason to be doing these things. There's manuscripts to be looking at. Whereas I think in a lot of sports, there's a lot of people that perhaps don't want to get trophies and things, but enjoy the sport. Mm. But the way we sort of built rhetoric around sports is, well, if you're not doing it for the trophy, then go to the gym to work out why you, why are you picking up the sport just for fun? That's not what we do here. Um, one thing I found, for instance, in rowing is that there's there's a tradition called beer boats. If you if you have enough boats, which very few universities do, so few universities do. But if you're fortunate enough to have enough boats for rowing, usually there's a there's a third boat that just go out just for fun. Um, but it's certainly not prioritised throughout the sport. So again, with HEMA, we can sort of there's a lot of excuses for want of a much better word that you're not having to go full out all the time. You can stop, take a breath, look at the manuscript, really dig into the, oh, is this how they would have done this and how they would have carried this? There's a lot of time to take pauses and there's not that in sport because it's all go, go, go yeah. for a trophy. I mean, it, the way I see it is that there are many different ways to make a contribution to the art, mm-hmm. right? And being a good tournament fencer isn't actually making much of a contribution to the art necessarily, mm-hmm. right? Because okay, so this particular person won a tournament, so what? Right? But the contribution to the art comes from people who organise the tournament. That's a massive contribution. And you don't need to be any good at sword fighting yourself to do that, or doing the research, yeah. or yeah, taking it's... a beginner's class. Or, yeah, there, there's a million ways to, to push the art forward without yeah. actually having to be some kind of you know, 22-year-old physically perfect specimen. Yeah, well, you you say that, and I and I completely agree. And it's it's amazing that there's so many ways which we can contribute. Although I would say, for instance, I will never be a good tournament fencer at all. I just it's not what I'm good at. It's like, for instance, when I was rowing, I was I did a lot of coaching. I didn't really did a lot of racing because right. that's just not what I was good at. But I could understand the sport and I could make other people understand it. It was yeah. the same with Hema. I did more coaching than I perhaps did practicing because I can see what people need to do and explain it. 
But when it comes to tournament fencing, I actually think it's it's so important because we're showing people that wouldn't necessarily pick up HEMA, so people that aren't interested in the medieval aspect and the academic aspect, that there is actually a place for people to join who just want to do a sport with a sword. Yeah, I think absolutely. a lot of people looking at HEMA think, oh, but I don't know about this manuscript, and I don't know about this. And that's the sort of problem that we're creating because... As, as, it's amazing we want to talk about our research, but it's, I think it's important to show new beginners that you don't have to know who Capafero is. You don't have to right. know who um, Mayer is. or what, You don't have to know these things in order to participate in the sport. So right. I think it's, it's something that we're suffering with at the moment because we're such a small community and we're trying to get as much information out there. So I think... <laughs> Sorry, your, your, your perspective just, just became a little clearer to me, right? I remember <laughs> what it was like 25 years ago. You think the community I is small know, now. I know, right? I know. Everyone right. tells okay. me this. And right. it's true. The community is huge. And, and here's the thing, right? I mean, I often tell my students that I have read the book so that they don't have to. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to teach students you know, from the book and show them the book. I mean, they all have to have seen the book because mm-hmm. it's there in the cell and I point it, point it out, and, right? But I have done sufficient research and interpretation that there is simply a practical martial arts thing that they can just go and do without ever having to even be able to read, let alone read that particular book, mm-hmm. right? Because not everyone's into it. But what I found is that a lot of people, they come for the swords and they mm-hmm. stay for the history. Yes. Or they come for the history and they stay for the martial arts, which, it's is, so which is weird. True. It's so true. So, so true. And of course, it's it's much much bigger than it was say twenty five years ago, but it's not mainstream. I think is the is the main point it's I'm making. There. I s- disagree there. hugely. I oh, think really? Okay. I really do. I, I that's not to say it's not getting more mainstream, but the majority of people have no idea what humor is. Whereas a lot of people have heard about alternative martial arts that are perhaps a bit more obscure because there's a long history to it. I think there's. An anxiety around HEMA is that people are like, that there isn't a long history, they think, to practicing what we practice today, when actually it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And and even, but the practice of, okay, the practice of contemporary martial arts goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. The practice of historical martial arts, as in doing research from books, late 19th century is the earliest yeah, I was going to say, it. it's about 1800s, isn't it? So, yeah, it's but again, Aylward and Hutton and Castle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. yeah. Yeah. But um but it's not it's I mean, you look at I have to go across different counties to find one club that practices historical European martial arts. Sure. There's only this the only reason I was able to contribute to opening Stratford Swords, for instance, was not because of my qualifications, but just because there simply was <laughs> nowhere nearby that was doing it. Yeah, but it it is vastly more widespread than it was even a decade ago. Absolutely, agree. Right. I agree with that. And it's be- and because of all the you know, resources and whatnot that are becoming available, it's becoming more and more common. And you know, it's been featured on ESPN, and it's been in yeah. newspapers, and it's been in you know even okay. I hate to make this reference because it annoyed the hell out of me when I saw it on screen. Um, but the um, Ridley Scott. Uh, Crusader film is it The Last Kingdom I think with um, it's got Liam Neeson and Orlando Bloom and it is terrible on all sorts of fronts but 
But there's this moment where Liam Neeson is giving, I think, Orlando Bloom a fencing lesson with long swords, great mm-hmm. big swords, totally wrong for the period. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, he picks up his sword like this, like Vadis Falcone, and he says, the Italians call this the God of the Hawk. Right? And that is, that is a, a reference to Vadi. Yeah. Right? Okay. 200 years before Vadi was born. So probably not actually Vadi. Totally wrong. Yeah. But at least there was that. And then he says something like, never use a low guard, which is absolute horseshit. Um, so, but, but at least they tried. And it was at least actually, they tried. And it was a moment of reference to historical martial arts in popular culture. Yes. So, yes. and that was a long time ago now. Yes, yeah. Although the best reference, as we all know, has to be Princess Bride. Absolutely. Well, there it we go. It has to be. It has to yes. be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, now she's going to expect to attack a cup of ferro. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah, that's, yeah, she's genius. Um, and, yeah, and that was in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. So... I mean, the film wasn't until 1987, but the book came the book out in the was, 70s. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Oh, it's incredible. yeah. Absolutely brilliant. It's as good as the film. Yeah. Yeah. Different, but as good as. Different, but then again, I, to my personal mind, that doesn't matter because it's a, a different, different audience and different, yeah. exactly, I think, as long as people are enjoying it. Um, it's uh-huh. like why I'm not that, I know it's awful to some people, but that's why I'm not that frustrated about how a lot of period films depict certain weapons and things although to me i will have a grumble they're not going out there to do a documentary they're going out there to make people interested it's like the best reference i think that i use so often is when they were filming lord of the rings i'm sure you know this reference how they didn't put the sound of swords coming out of the sheath because it wouldn't have made that sound and they showed it to an audience and and the audience didn't like it well, they just thought they were missing some sound. And they said, oh, when are yeah. you going to finish it? So they actually put that sound in because it's what the audience were expecting. And even though it's wrong, yeah, Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's part of the language of cinema. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like an established gesture. Yes. Right. Exactly. If you see a person looking like this, it means that. If you see a yeah. person doing this, it means that. If they're dressed a certain way, it means they have this kind of job. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? That sort of thing. So it's... it's, it's I think it sort of fits in there. And yeah, it's stupid. Yeah. But, you know, in the same movies, you might have, you know, wizards and spells. Yeah, ex- exactly. Oh, it frustrates me when people say, oh, this isn't accurate. It's like, it is a, it is a fantasy film. I just need you to know. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, that's the thing. If it's a fantasy film, I don't care. Yep. But if it is presenting itself as, like, historical, mm-hmm. right, based on a true story sort of thing and mm-hmm. that. well I, I I couldn't bring myself to watch the movie The Last Duel I just couldn't do it it's like everything about it is so fundamentally appallingly god awfully wrong yeah. in the in the trailer it's like I just couldn't do that to myself it's 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 not doing it to yourself and it's also doing it to the people who would have to be forced to watch it with you um, like, <laughs> I don't know I, I can keep quiet that's the uh, that's not a skill that I have, as I'm sure you've learned over this hour. The, the trick is trick popcorn. If you if you're busy <laughs> shoveling popcorn in, you can't speak. <laughs> that's amazing. It's like I tried uh, Bridgerton the other day, and I just I couldn't. I watched ten minutes of it, and I had to stop. I just I could not thing. do it. I saw i I have a wife and two daughters, and they they do like their Bridgerton, particularly yeah. my wife and my youngest daughter. And I started watching the first episode with my wife because. You know, 
she'd heard of it. It was good. This was a while ago when it came out. And I just left the room after about 15 minutes because I just, I just couldn't. Because couldn't in my it. head, it was supposed to be a Regency yeah. drop, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but then I actually kind of realized it's fantasy. It is. And it's, it's more like the SCA's idea of the Middle Ages as they ought to have been. Yes, exactly. Right? exactly. And so I've actually watched a bunch of Bridgerton with, um, with my family and really enjoyed it because I, it, I'm seeing it as fantasy. I'm not seeing it as a historical. Exactly. When you readjust but, your frame. Yeah. Uh, have you seen the movie Plunkett and McLean? Oh, it's so good. <laughs> right? It's about it's about these these highwaymen. I wish this was going to see in, your face. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is these highwaymen in uh, actual historical characters. They they existed okay. um, in sort of 18th century London, and it is it's it's a fantastic film, right? <laughs> but it is in many respects very wrong, but it's deliberately wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a couple of characters who sort of minor sort of comic reliefy type characters these sort of foppish people and and they're using imagine a posh english person trying to be a rapper saying things like geezer right and it's hysterical <laughs> right and it's, it's just completely and totally wrong but it's an absolutely fantastic film if you don't if you treat it as fantasy get your fantasy hat on yep. and watch it as fantasy you don't all the historically wrongness bits just yeah like 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 i mean the end the ending of the movie i won't give any spoil i mean it's been out for 25 years but so people should have watched it by now but i won't i won't spoil the movie but but not everyone's been around 25 years to watch it yeah yeah. (laughs) good point well because Um, i only say that because as someone i was in a classics class and we were reading the iliad super famous book and uh the teacher told us what happened at the very end and we all went ah spoilers and she was like it's been out for 2,000 years it's like yes but I've been out for 18 and I haven't had a chance <laughs> to read it yet <laughs> that is fair that is fair okay so but like a historical purist will go yes but the ending is not the way it actually happened in real life but who cares it's just brilliant it's how it should have interested I yeah, think that's yeah. the important thing and this is you know we complain about oh the arts doesn't have any funding but also we want everything all the representations of our field to go exactly the way we want them to and we're going to be really strict about it it's like it's why reenactment is I, I think such a phenomenal thing it's not something I am interested or will ever be interested in doing but it's so important to get the public interested in certain parts right. of history and then that helps us with funding applications and studies and future research all from getting yeah. the public involved very true speaking of getting the public involved you should definitely publish those books we were talking about (coughs) (laughs) I'll stop talking now Um, okay so you start historical martial arts um, with fibromyalgia autism and ADHD and a dodgy knee right that's that's a (laughs) tricky starting point it is Um, so do you have any advice for people in similar or related positions Oh gosh, like I think the best thing I think my advice gears more towards instructors rather than practitioners. Go on then, I can take it. Uh, <laughs> well, it comes from my experience as an instructor as well. Um mm-hmm. and I find that a lot of instructors are so eager and willing to help neurodivergent people, but they just do not know how. And okay. they don't want to put the burden on their new neurodivergent students going okay tell me everything about how i can facilitate you in this practice because sometimes they won't right. know themselves i learned so much about things that set uh 
parts of like my autism, my ADHD off through doing it. So I couldn't turn up to someone and say, here's the list of things I need and the reasonable adjustments, go for it. So I think the best thing to do is first, if someone discloses that they have either, you know, have a neurodivergency, is to have a brief discussion with them first about regarding whether they'd like to advocate for themselves or if they prefer for the instructor to advocate for them. So uh, a lot of my students would prefer that I say, hi guys, this is um, Ben. Um, He's got uh, autism, so just make sure you give him really clear instructions when he's your sparring partner. Others would be very happy to just talk to their partners or not at all, but leave it up to themselves. So different people have different preferences about that um it would also i think it's really important as well to discuss sensory overload so for me personally a lot of noise can throw me off and very specifically the sound and smell of steel from being in the practice room too long you know how the practice room starts to smell of just metal Metal, there was no way i could have known that would throw me off until I'd done lots of practice and got to that point in training where we'd been there for two hours and yeah. it made me really uncomfortable and I couldn't focus. But fortunately, wow. my instructor at the time incorporated lots of small breaks in for me. So I knew I could just step away without worrying about having to explain mm. to people, okay, it basically stems from this and this is the reason. I'd, it, he'd already incorporated that into training sessions for me. So it yeah. meant that sometimes I wouldn't use them. I wouldn't need the break. But it was ni- nice, nice knowing that there was an opportunity where I could step away and it wouldn't be examined or asked about. Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, you, it doesn't need to be a big deal. No, no, it really doesn't. Um, it's it's just like you know, some students after an intense bout need to sit and have a little cry. Yeah, and that's fine. As long yeah. as you know they're all right, you can just leave yes, them to it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you, you, uh, if you don't know them, uh, you have to check that they're all right. Exactly. But you, you don't actually have to. It's not a wrong thing that's happening. No. It's, it's a, if they're bleeding, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good distinction. <laughs> right, there, 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 there you really have to, you know, it's just water leaking out of the eyes because that's how they deal with that particular kind of stress in that particular situation. Yeah. That's fine unless they tell you it isn't. Yeah. But for a lot of people, particularly, I would say, blokes of my generation, that's a very difficult idea to get your head around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because what it would take to make somebody conditioned the way we were conditioned to cry in a space like that is so extreme that it would definitely require intervention. Yeah. That's a very good point. And, and that's why these brief discussions at the beginning of sessions, it's like for anyone that plays Dungeons and Dragons, it's like having a session zero with I, your players. I think, I think that's like 90% of I'm trying to be so. pl- like, look, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so when I do, when I'm acting as Dungeon Master, I'll have a session zero with my players one-on-one so we can talk about things like uh, any triggers they might have, any boundaries. So like some of them okay. would prefer if I didn't discuss blood, but that's like a soft okay. boundary so I can talk about it, just not be super gory. So just having things like that means it's not a big deal in front of everyone uh in the moment as well when you're probably quite emotional you've already set these boundaries in place and that's one reason why i talk so ridiculously openly about my own disabilities because when i bring it up the first few times people think that they have to really give it a lot of attention and say i'm listening to you and tell me all the ways i can help make your life better even though i talk to you maybe five minutes per day just tell me how i can support you everything and that is so lovely but I don't need that all the time. I, sometimes right. it's just nice to know, 
if I, if I, for instance, sometimes I'll just come across a bit, I'll respond to something in an odd manner that is perhaps not expected socially. And because they know I'm autistic, they'll go, oh, it's, it's nothing for me to take personally. It's clearly just, that's just how they operate and things. Um, and sometimes, you know, I have days where I'll come in on my walking stick, for instance, and people are very, very, very kind saying, oh my gosh, the, what happened to you? What, what, what injury have you sustained? And people don't realize that it's a chronic pain thing. And that means some days I can be bouncing off the walls with a sword in a boat rowing in a cage all of this and other days i'll be like under my weighted blanket going i cannot move today (laughs) and that's not because i've sustained an injury that's just the nature of chronic pain so a lot of people that i have these discussions with start to treat it as just an everyday thing it's like oh yeah she just she just needs to a break when it gets a bit loud it's not a big it's not a big deal thing do do, do you find though that people have a hard time getting their head around the idea of someone who's walking with a stick one day and seems perfectly fit and healthy the next day and then is walking with a stick another day. And it's like, well, do they really need that stick? Absolutely. Are they actually really injured? Absolutely. Because in most people's experience, if you hurt yourself and then you get over to the point where you can move normally again, then that's yeah. it. It's gone. It's done. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, and, and it's why I talk about it so much. And personally, don't get offended when people don't understand that because I'm aware that a lot of people would get offended and then we can't have these conversations if that makes any sense so if uh, you know it's a sensitive point to a lot of people and that's absolutely their right but then it means if it's a sensitive point to everyone we're never gonna people are not gonna be able to understand chronic pain um so it's a conversation i have a lot and it's difficult because what i have is not it's not well studied i don't even think it's a thing in the sense that i think in 10 years time we'll realize there are three different things one's an autoimmune thing one's a a brain thing because there's just so little research on it it's just a catch-all term like i went to the doctor the other day and said i'm having this symptom and they just kind of wrote it down we're like yep good to know we'll add that to the <laughs> to the research pile i think that the one silver lining to the whole covid thing is there are going to be so many people with post-viral conditions which some of that will present like ME or fibromyalgia or similar sort of things that it may stimulate a whole lot more research. It would be, it would be lovely to see because at the moment it's just pain management. That's all you talk. That's right. what I can do. But then they say, we can't give you painkillers because you can't have that for too long. So you're like, so what do you want me to, what do you want me to do? So it's about coming up with all these little, you know, being able to manage my pain on a bad day. Um, right. you know, things like that. And it's, and it's a very similar thing for autism and ADHD. Some days I'll have more of a, neurodivergent day than i would be another day like i have um a scrap of fabric at my desk that is the same as this blanket here which when i'm stressed and talking i just need to fiddle with my hands but i it's not something that is is that interesting so i know that if i said to people oh i have to sit with with this blanket here people be like okay that's a normal thing to do but if my ticks present in a different way it really throws them that I'm not needing to do it all the time. And why are you uh, stopping them? It's 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 difficult for the people that have it to understand. So of course, people who don't have it are not going to understand. That's that's okay as long as there's space being made. So the times that I do need to say walk with a stick, for instance, I can. Yeah. Like we had an amazing session with a practitioner whose name escapes me, and I'll hit myself when I remember who it is who did a lot of work with walking sticks, fighting with walking oh, yeah. sticks. Yeah. So that was a way that my club managed to incorporate just a cool, different kind of fighting that pertained to something that I use all the time and just made it super normal. 
it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a student who used to use a stick sometimes when when training, mm-hmm. and yeah, we did spend a bit of time looking at how to use a walking stick as a defensive yeah. weapon because you know he's a vulnerable sort of person for various physical reasons, yeah. and you know. If he has a stick, might as well be able to clobber somebody with it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I know of a practitioner who um, helped his students. There was a student who um, couldn't stand unless they were holding onto the wall or in a wheelchair. So they took some time to adapt the lessons so they could hold onto the wall and just use their one hand and not use footwork. Now, is that historically accurate? Yes. No. Angelo. Angelo has an exercise called thrusting at the wall where the master stands... Hang on. So I'm the master of the student. It's been a while since I read it. Stands with their shoulder touching the wall. Um, so, of course, you could use your hand there as well. And and so they have to be able to do everything with the blade and I've not rely on their feet to get out of trouble. I've done that. Do you know what you're... So, ex- exactly. So I was going to make the argument that, well, I think maybe then let me change it and say a lot of people would look at it and say, you, can, you can't swing a longsword, therefore you can't what? be part of HEMA. If you're not, but it's it's all about these adaptations that yes, they take time to come up with, but and they're historical. Like I mean, there are there are examples of pieces of armor that are clearly adapted for people who have missing yes, limbs. Yes, 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 yes. Right. So exactly. You know, disability, injury, and whatnot is not a new phenomenon. I was just about to say that. Exactly. Exactly. Um, cool. Okay. So, do you want to summarise what you would say to instructors who? are not neurodivergent themselves, but will have students showing up who are? I would say the if you take away one thing from it, it's find a way to have a brief discussion with them before you start. Um, give them a chance to try on protective gear, for instance. Like, one thing that really threw me was having the helmet on and the sword come at my face. I thought I'd be yeah. prepared for it, and I wasn't. And you might have a student who's really going for it and are not giving them a chance. So giving a chance to discuss whether they want to advocate for themselves or if they want you to advocate for them is really important. And then giving them a chance to have a look at the space really early, um, look at the equipment they'll be using early, you know, get a chance to hold it and things, which, you you know, might not be something that's usually done, but it's it's helpful just to understand your own area a bit yeah. more. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Um, so what is the best idea you have not acted on? When you say the best idea I've not acted on, yeah. do you mean as in the best idea that I need to do but have not done yet? Or it's good that I've not acted on it? or How, how you interpret the question is as interesting as the answer itself. Interesting. I'd say the best thing that I've never done, as in something that I would like to do but have not yet done, yep. has, okay. to be, has to be to purchase um, a harness of armour. Because Ooh, the amount of work okay. I've seen Daniel Jaquette doing, who I just love. I have such a crush on him. He's so cool. He's so cool. And his research is so cool. And I would just... I just would love so, so you, you enjoyed this week's episode then? Yeah, it was... I just... <laughs> I... He... I One thing I love, actually, when I talk to a lot of people about humour is I so often show them his video of him and the soldier and the firefighter. Oh, it's the so good. I mean, it's all, and do you know what's even weirder? Is I realised I was using GIFs of him before yeah. I knew who he was. That it was him and it yeah. was insane. I remember seeing him. I took myself to the International Medieval Conference in 20... 
want to say 19 at Leeds. Um, I paid for it all myself. Um, my supervisor was like, why are you going? Like, you're an undergraduate. Like, it's not, with all the love in the world, yeah. like, it's not really for you. And I've met all, I've met people that I call my sword uncles there. Mm-hmm. And I've met so many HEMA people. And I remember seeing Daniel Jaquette and I just had an absolute meltdown. And it was like, <laughs> it was like, it was like a room of like 10, 12 people, three of whom were the presenters. And I was like, oh, I'm so grateful that I get to be here and I just get to listen. I must look like such a weirdo. Um, yeah. But, but honestly, honestly, to be any good at historical martial arts, you have to be comfortable looking like such a weirdo at times. Yes. You know, swinging swords around in the park, you're a weirdo. Simple well, as. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so, so you're going to get yourself harness. I'd love to. I'd love to. Any I'd, particular I, style? I mean, I'd love something like Maximilian-esque. That would be so cool. But I don't know. I think I'd want to go for something more practical because I'd love to really get a grip for how things are moving. Right. Pretty as, sta- as standard as I can get. What What historical style of combat would you be doing? Oh, be uh, Italian longsword for sure. Italian. Oh well, then then you need the Avant armor. Yeah, it does look really cool. It, it all really looks cool. so cool. I keep on trying to convince my partner to get me these pieces. Like it's not that expensive, but I just slip like random swords into the house and daggers <laughs> without him knowing. I had a friend come over the other day. She was my ex roommate, and um, she just opened. Uh, we were having. Um, coffee but because i live in a house with roommates i have like a little station set up with like my kettle and mugs and everything mm-hmm. it's like oh where are your spoons i was like oh just in that drawer there she pulled it open it was just knives and daggers <laughs> but she was like she's like i have not missed this at all because she used to live with me <laughs> but it's 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 handy having a knife in every drawer well i watch enough true crime <laughs> to know it's very handy actually <laughs> but but honestly you're better off with a stick Yes. Because yeah. if you if you kill with a burglar with it. a stick, if you kill a burglar with a stick, when you could have used a knife, yep. obviously you were not trying to kill them. Exactly. Well, a stick, I would stress to your readers, with uh, listeners, with a sock on. Really important. Why? Because if you have a sock on the end of it, if they try and grab it off of you... Ah, it slips off. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Huh. It reminds me, a long time ago, I needed to get a stump out of my parents' garden, mm-hmm. and it required going and buying a big axe. So I went to the hardware store in the little town where they live, and I bought a big axe. And I was like, going to just walk out of, the, out of the shop with it, and down to the car, like 500 yards away. Yeah. And the chap in the shop, it was one of those classic old school, yeah, probably you've never seen one, because they, they tend to disappear, um, where the people working there, they wear these brown lab coats and they know everything and they're behind a counter. You tell them what you want and they go and get it. You don't wander around the shelves because what do you know, right? So I said, I need a big axe and they they got me a big axe. They said, ah, ah, you can't walk down the street with that. It's illegal. But they got a paper bag and they put it (laughs) over the head of the axe and a little bit of sticky tape to keep it there. Fine, there you go. That's what you want. Because if it's got a paper bag on the end of it, you can't possibly hurt someone with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've um, I learnt through. There's a lot of um, police, of course, that do HEMA, and I was thinking, yeah, well, sure. how am I going to get my swords on the train and everything? And they and he he was just like, it's okay because we know you. <laughs> he was like, as long as your okay. local police know you. <laughs> but but also, honestly, honestly, it's also okay if they're in a bag out of yep. sight, yeah, and. You're, you have a legitimate reason for taking them from one place to another, like yeah. you're going to an event or something. Yeah. 
Um, it's a bit borderline if they're sharp. Yep. I worry about my sharps sometimes. I have my travel sharps that I travel with. Your travel sharps. <laughs> well, yeah, because because I you know. So no, you know, know. If, what if makes, they me, get what take... makes me sad is I know exactly what you mean, but <laughs> right. that's not yeah. a normal sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like you know, I have I have friends who are very seriously into their like um, tech security stuff, and they have a travel laptop. Which yep. is just some old laptop that has the necessary necessary minimum, but has no access to any of their secure stuff. They'll set all that up when they get to where they're going. Yep. But if if the I don't know the border agents want to have a look at it, they can have a look at it, and it's a perfectly legitimate laptop, and it's got some emails and stuff on it, and that's that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, travel shops. If they take it away, it's just, it's sad, but replaceable. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. You need to get yourself some harness. It sounds like your partner's not too keen on the harness idea. Well, he's he's very into his martial arts. He does um, Thai boxing, standard okay. boxing. So he's he's very into that. I think he just worries about me because I'm so clumsy, and we have a cat that can just get right under your feet. And so surely you, you need armor. Or... You need armor to protect yourself from the. Is cat. my argument is completely my argument. So yeah, but then for a, for a decent suit of armour you could also buy a car yeah now, but they have a licence a suit of armour suit of armour is better than a car anyway obviously but um, I don't I don't have a licence because it's too expensive to get lessons really um, yeah so, you know, I take so my I take my kids out into a field and we just I teach them to drive in a field no I, I used to I used to do that we used to live on a farm so I used to we had like a big old Range Rover so that was mm-hmm. fun to do and I did my um, my theory, but it was so long ago. My theory has run out. Oh god! Um, but it's just—it's a lot of money to put down at one time. Um, yeah, I'd much rather get like a Dyson Hoover or a harness of armor. <laughs> well, okay, but you're not going to get a, a harness for the price of a Dyson. No, exactly. You might get—you might get your arms for the for the price of a top end Dyson. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, very true. Curass will be another three Dysons, maybe. Yeah. It's fine. I, I, my current sort of way of looking at money is I'm learning to fly planes. So it's hours in the air or Capaferros. Because I have uh, an original Capaferro over there. You've probably heard about it on, on the podcast. Yeah? I, 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 do you know what? I have very similar. For those that are listening, he's just getting it out. Sorry. Wow! Yeah, oh, that's what I got. Shut my your butt! That is the coolest. Oh my you gosh. see? You see? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Contemporary <gasps> binding. Oh Contemporary binding. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. And you see, my Capoeira and my car are worth about the same. Well, no, yeah. one of them is one of them is worth fabulous amounts, and the other one is just a car. Yeah. But in terms of money, they are, they have an equivalent value in pounds in the current market. Um, but yeah, priorities, right? So that's what you'd grab out of if your house is on fire. Once the children and my wife are out. That, see, that always goes without saying, of course, human life. Then, well, then, it, it's then, equivalent to... It's, it's my my cap, my, my Fabris and my Marazzo and my Girard are the most important books that I have. That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Oh, yeah. the bookseller in me, the 
um, archivist in me that everything. Yeah. Oh. But but the Capafaro is about thirty hours in the air, mm-hmm. which is a lot of hours in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and a decent my armor when I bought my my armor, it was about one and a bit Capaferos. Okay. So it's it's but it's doable. I mean, you don't buy it all at once. No, of course. Well, you course. can do, but, but you, I... you can just save the money and get, get you know. I would start with the Curus, if I was you. Yeah. I think the reason I haven't picked a style or anything yet is because it's just so far into the future of possibilities. Why? That it's just not even... Why? Because, because I just I keep on buying PlayStation 5 games instead of saving up for this. Ah! And, well, buying, more, we have and, it. and buying more D&D module books than, like, <laughs> saving So up. it's a priorities thing. Okay, it is. fair enough. It's important but not urgent to me. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that's... Like, yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have found people who want to play D&D in real life who are regularly free once a week so I'm, I'm going to buy all the books I possibly can because that is worth its weight in gold that's worth like three harnesses really? Mm-hmm. six of them six people or six books? six people okay okay yeah see I haven't played D&D since the 80s and it's probably changed a little bit since then. But what would happen is me and my friends, we would be in my house or whatever, and we would start this game, and then there'd be a fight. And instead of rolling dice, we'd go outside and we would fight with sticks That is whatever. so cool. Well, it's so it's, cool. It just, it's like, then, then one of my friends got this computer, and he had this, this game on it where you could do kickboxing kind of stuff. Right, so yeah, punch, punch, kick, kick, that sort of thing, and you could do spinning back kicks and what have you. And I was like, I really want to do that. So I joined the karate class. I love it. I don't do virtual very well. No, I'm the same. I I had to leave my D and D group because I, I was really struggling with the Zoom format. But I think, to be honest, they were very grateful. So I was playing with um, my DM was Yasin Suriadis, who is my sword uncle, um, okay. and he. And his group were all making references that I didn't get because at the time they were making them, I wasn't even born yet. And they're like, oh, right. remember this reference? So I think I was getting a little bit irritating to them. So I think that was probably a blessing <laughs> in disguise. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, it's good that you know, you're honest about your priorities. The D&D group is clearly useful and important to you. And that actually, you may get more benefit out of that than out of a suit of armor. Because also, uh-huh. honestly, thinking about it, that suit of armour is not going to be good for your knee. What, knee, back, none of it. <laughs> I mean, particularly the knee because of the leverage. Yeah. If the armour is well made, it should be all right for your back. Mm-hmm. If it fits properly. Because mm-hmm. most of the weight is on your hips. But that's what I'm interested in. That's what I want to have a feel for and see where there could be issues and, you know. But, well, then yeah. you just got to do it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. And you've got a proper job now, right? So you, you I got a proper job. Proper sell some of those PlayStation games. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, okay. Speaking of money, somebody gives you a million quid to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? One breastplates in various sizes. Immediately off the bat, chest plates in various sizes. Because okay, are they I not currently not, available in various sizes? Not not my size. <laughs> Not the majority of women's okay. size that I know. 
Okay. Um, so it's... So we're talking about like plastic plates plastic. that go under the fencing jacket? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the majority of women I know do not use them because they just do not fit yeah. properly. So this is, I mean, obviously this is like you've had a million loads of money to make custom and everything and that, that would be cool. It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be. And yet... Because, I mean, I have a friend who gave her husband a plaster cast of her bosom as a Christmas present once, which is a very good present to give your husband, excellent present. Yes. Um, And, you know, if you can take a plaster cast, you can just mould the plastic to the cast and you have a perfect fit every time. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that hard. I mean, it's a process. It's not that hard. But again, it's important but not urgent. I would say it's urgent and important. No, I think it's urgent. Uh, I think it's very yeah. urgent. But generally, people do not think it's urgent. People think it's just a nice thing that would be nice to have at some point. Are those people thinking that blokes? <laughs> However did you know? <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, no. All right. So the first thing is you would, you would maybe set up a company to produce, um, should we say, Plastic chest protectors in the same sort of ranges of sizes as you, as you can get bras in. So the Bravissimo of armour is what I would set up. What is it's, a Bravissimo? Uh, it's a shop for um, lots of various bra sizes. Okay. So, Good to know. Yeah. So there you go. The Bravissimo right. of armour is what I'd set should, up. Should it not be the Rigby Impeller of armour? I mean, that's very well, high class. Well, that is an amazing reference. Um, but again, a bit spenny. So we got to say yeah, that for okay. our, for our harnesses. But yes, the Rigby Appella would be The Rigby of, okay. So, so that's, is that the one thing or do you have other things that you would I spend your money on? I have one other thing, which would Go be on. to absolutely improve online resources of manuscripts. So pay people to transcribe and translate and make it accessible for people that don't have uh, certain language skills or history skills. So just mm-hmm. throw it all at online resources. Okay. But I think I'm slightly influenced by my experience at the medieval bibliography and seeing the yeah. difference that made. And, and that work is being done. I mean, the Whitton is. is doing It absolutely is. I, so I mean, throw, I mean, like just giving yeah, yeah. much more money um, so that sources of people don't have to do it as a volunteer thing. People can right. really dedicate time to it because um, we've got so many incredible people doing this work, but it's all just in their own time, you know, out of the goodness yeah. of their hearts. Yeah, and you know, I've I've published a couple of translated type stuff, and they make no money at all. Nope. My 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 like training manuals make reasonable cash, but translations make no money. No, because very few people are interested in it. As as is the nature of not as in <laughs> sorry, let me clarify. As in in translations <laughs> no, my of work. Shit, no, I know. no, 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 it's boring. no, 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 I find a lot of people huh. would like to read the translations because they can understand the words, completely get it, brilliant. But they don't have the context. They don't know why this paragraph is important. Okay, Things well, like that. I mean, I said my, my translations don't do that well compared to the other ones. But I mean, they do, they do, they make their costs back in the first month and they make a nice, gentle little steady income after that. 
Um, but I think that's maybe because I usually, in, well, invariably include sort of commentary and explanation. So it's not just the translation. I mean, I put the translation, just pure translation. I give it to the Wigton now to, to do with what they wish, right? So that anyone can have it for free. Um, but the, the commentary and, okay, this, he says this, I think it means that, and this is how it affects what you do with the sword. Yeah. That, that seems to do that okay. That is gold dust. That is absolute gold dust. It really is. Um, it would be, it, it's such an important thing to do because I think, we are so fortunate in that we have so much experience with these translations and that we can make those, we can do that analysis quite quickly and see why these things are important. But especially to a lot of new people and to the general public, if we want to open it up a bit more, there needs to be these explanations. So that's yeah. brilliant. Okay. So money on a, a way of getting a variety of sizes of chest protections for women. That's good. The Rigby and Pella of chest protection. We, we can go there. Um, and paying people who know what they're doing to actually translate these things. And to, I, there's a lot of translations out there that are absolutely terrible. Yeah, there are. Including one of my own. <laughs> right. Why did you say my, that? My first, well, my first translation of value was shit. But it was as good as I could do at the time, but it was yeah. not nearly good enough right so my second one is a lot better but um i you know i have people who because they don't understand the academic side of things at all mm-hmm. right they think it's a matter of taste mm-hmm. and they actually prefer the first one mm-hmm. and so that's the one they want to use it's like no no first one is wrong i I read it wrong, I misread this word and I translated it like this or I just completely misunderstood this entire phrase and I translated it like this and it's just like, I mean, it's, it's you know, if you have no Italian and there's nothing else out there, it's better than nothing, yeah. probably. But it's, I mean, I withdrew it from publication when I published the second one because no one should have the first one anymore because yeah. it's not right. It's like, it's, yeah, it's, but it, again, in many places, objectively wrong. But then you can't know that until you've gone through the whole process, right? And so it's it's such a worthwhile thing to do. But it it kills me that people, the a lot of people, are having to do it as a as a volunteer thing, which is it's so worthwhile and brilliant. And, but it and they're doing money. it. They're doing it without access to good editorial oversight. That's it. Right. That's it. I I went so far as to do this whole PhD nonsense, so I could get career academics to look at my work in proper depth, which yep. is also how, how I found out that my va- first translation of value was shit, right? Because a career academic who knows about this stuff was kind enough to tell me so yeah. <laughs> in my first fiver, which is why I had to have a second fiver some years later, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's, it is that hard to get oversight, Yeah. right? To get someone who knows what they're doing to look at the work and go, and go through it line by line and say, no, actually what is written here cannot mean what you've written down there because this, this sign means this and this, this is a, an abbreviation of this, which means that. And we do know this stuff. Well, this stuff is known, but most people don't know it. And yeah, I think actually it might be almost as useful to throw the money at the editors. Yeah. 
would be my argument, but I think that's from coming from editing. <laughs> that's my <laughs> argument. <laughs> I've I've been an editor longer than I've been a, a a writer, but it's it's true. It's and it's not something that writers you you can't do it yourself. You just can't. You need someone else to look at it. That's not to say what you've written is wrong or bad or you should be like. No. But it's so important to get a second look at it. And yeah. um, people in the humanities often do these things so like out of the goodness of their hearts and it's lovely but it would be nice to actually pay these people like for instance christopher garrard i couldn't access a lot of his work at the time because of my institutional access and he does a lot of work on round tables two years before i did mine so right. just missed it yeah <laughs> but he sent me all of his work or all, all of his publications which he didn't need to do because i would have gladly bought them although i yeah. just didn't have the money i was a student yeah. i couldn't possibly have afforded it so it's it makes me sad at times that he had to do that because he should be being paid for his research very niche research that won't be getting you know it's not going to be like a a huge bestseller that the general public's going to be reading all the time so it's important that we have a lot of funding for these things because as wonderful as it is that people want to volunteer so much of it goes unregulated yeah and you know the single big, biggest expense for me when i'm producing a book is the editor right i pay you know I pay for layout, I pay for editing, I pay for various other bits and pieces, but um, like maybe 70% of the entire out-of-pocket cost of producing the book is paying the editors. Yeah, sounds because, because, but you know, they can, they can edit, generally speaking, they can edit like the English language, but there are people you can pay to like check your translation of, I don't know, some 17th century German text into English. Right. That's why we need all this money for an attic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because then, then there's a market for it. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Elizabeth. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Just thank you so much for having me on. And I'm sure this will need a lot of editing for the amount of rambling rabbit holes yeah. I've gone on. <laughs> but uh, just, just thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for being interested in my very niche research. I just, it's been wonderful and you've lit a fire up my butt to get on to um actually publishing these things so excellent mission accomplished (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation with elizabeth you can find the episode show notes including that awesome appendix we mentioned at swordschool.com forward slash podcast while you're there you can sign up to my mailing list and i'll send you a free copy of my book sword fighting for writers game designers and martial artists I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash thesordguy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Heart accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Stephen Fick, Now, Stephen and I go back to the 90s, so we reminisce a little bit about what historical fencing was like uh, many, many moons ago, before, in fact, today's guest, Elizabeth, was even born. So that's how far back we go. So um, Stephen, since then, has founded the Davenish European Martial Arts School in Santa Clara in California, and he is probably best known for his interpretations of Joseph Swetnam's rapier stuff from the early 17th century. You don't want to miss that. 
I'm sure, so you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. What helps the most, of course, is sharing it. So if you've enjoyed this episode particularly, please do share it with your friends. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.